Those for you who are unfamiliar are the taiko drums of Japan, because today we are going to be discussing homosexuality in pre-modern Japan. I have to say that while I did know that Japan was a pretty sexually liberal country and society during kind of medieval periods, but especially between 1500s to the 1800s, I had no idea to what extent their society was and how just open and accepted same-sex sex was at that time. And I had no idea the extent that it was in their society in terms of it being commercialized across all swaths of society. And I ended up being completely fascinated after this book that I read for today's podcast called Male Colors, The Construction of Homosexuality in Tokugawa, Japan by Gary Loop who is a professor at Tufts University. One thing, too, that makes it incredibly interesting is the fact that we have so much written about contemporaneously during that time. And in the history world, anything that's written contemporaneously is like history source gold. It's more formally called primary source, but it's just it makes the historical accuracy so much higher and better than you know, kind of prehistory where we have people writing about stuff that happened hundreds of years earlier that we get kind of with ancient Greece and and Romans and stuff like that. So it is a gold mine out there. Now, the term for homosexuality in terms of just same-sex sex sex in Japan was called nonshoku. That's like the most, it's kind of the, the beginning of the umbrella term for it. And I'll get more into detail later about how it kind of breaks down. But it's called nanshoku, so N-A-N-S-H-O-K-U. And that translates to male color, which if you listen to my first episode on ancient Greece, it's the Japanese equivalent of male eros, so just kind of like the love and desire for men. And the characters actually originate from Chinese characters, which is, there's a lot of relation between the, the Japanese alphabet having some origins from from China. But it's also interesting because they believe the practice was imported from China, and I'll get to that too here in a little bit. Now, as I mentioned before, the time period we're going to be talking about is post-medieval Japan, early modern Japan time period. So I don't want to get into the weeds, but I do want to give you a historical context before discussing about society at that time. It is a turning point. And in this context, what you have is when city and urban life starts to really take hold in Japan. It is a period in time where society starts really taking off, both in terms of cultural complexity, but also, you know, technological advancements, literary advancements, stuff like that. So it is a significant turning point. Also at that time, you have what is called the Tokugawa shogunate. Now, shogun is shogun is basically another word for king in Japanese society. And leading up to the throughout the 1500s, it was a warring nation. So you had all of these different, not really tribes, but but different warring factions taking place. And the one that conquered all of Japan got to be declared shogun. And throughout the 1500s, you had a lot of fighting, but by the end of it. By the end of the 1500s, early 1600s, you had a general named Tokugawa, and he was responsible for not only uniting Japan in 1603, the Battle of Sekigahara, but also his policies would enable Nanshoku 
to be legally allowed and also at times promoted for different reasons. And so that was also the beginning of, of modern history in Japan. That goes up into the 1850s. For people who are really interested in Japanese history, 1868 is the big turning point in Japanese history. That is when the shogunate ends and the Meiji Restoration begins. And that is when Japan starts adopting a lot of Western aspects to their society. You have America comes in and other European countries, and they basically force Japan open to trading and commerce and kind of has like a bit of a colonial feel, feel to it. Not quite as much as what happened in, in China, but it was definitely something that the, the Japanese were forced to do. It's a nuanced situation. They started adopting Western values because they, be they believed it was kind of a way of the future. One of the first examples that we see of same-sex sex or nanshoku as we call it begins in Buddhist monasteries. And that was where we first see a lot of documentation of the tradition of nanshoku taking place. And it was alleged that it was brought over by an individual named Kukai. And this he was a significant figure both in Buddhism in Japan. He's also allegedly responsible for, for beginning one of the Japanese alphabets. And isn't considered like a demigod in Japan, but is definitely definitely an extolled figure. And so he had monks that were going over and training in China at that time, around the 800s. And that's when they believe that the practice first started and it was quote-unquote imported. Although we don't really have the contemporaneous documentation until about the 15th century is when you start seeing it a lot more. But they do believe this is when it became a lot more culturally legitimized and, and the practices began to start. Now, Buddhist monks at this time, they're living in Japan. This is also... A combination of Shintoism, which is a cultural religion of Japan. So the, the synthesis of the two create a really unique situation where you have a different form of cultural Buddhism than we see elsewhere. So technically, the Buddhist monks are supposed to be celibate. It's like Catholic monks, Catholic priests, same thing. You're, you're supposed to be celibate. You're not supposed to be having sex with anyone and supposed to be chased. And that, that wasn't the case, but there, there's a lot of historical speculation and there's some historical documentation that supports this that shows that the monks believed that if they had sex with other men, that it wasn't as bad as if they had sex with women and that it was not seen as an equivalent for breaking your, your vows of celibacy. So that cultural exception promoted same-sex sex to take place within that sphere or that realm of society. There are no women at all in these monasteries and with the monks. So you do have what's called a homosocial society. If you examine history from an anthropological perspective, whenever a bunch of men are together, it just ultimately leads for homosexuality. It is just a phenomenon that has been documented for thousands of years at this point. So you do see them making exceptions for same-sex sex. And the one quote that they had from one of the monks was that when it happens, it was just a regrettable lapse in discipline. Also, at the time, there was a lot of sexism against women. Like, you just, that was something that, you know, was happening across a lot of civilizations at that time. But it was something that could also kind of be used as an excuse to to 
be breaking your vows of celibacy and to to be engaging in nanshoku. At a certain point, though, it does start to become slightly institutionalized, similar to pederasty in, in ancient Greece, where you have younger acolytes who come in. And an acolyte is is basically, in this case, either a religious figure in training, so maybe someone who eventually is going to be a monk, or someone that is involved in the religious ceremonial practices. The other thing that we find is samurai who are part of the aristocracy at that time. They could have their edu- their earlier educations involving religious training. So you could have you know the son of nobility going to live with monks for several years. And part of his education is learning Shintoism, learning Buddhism, and having this kind of educational experience. But it's more focused on spiritual and religious training instead of the other thing that we find, too, is that they start forming relationships, and they call them brotherhood bonds. And in these brotherhood bonds, um, they're actually quite, they're quite serious. You start seeing relationships that are beyond just sex. You do have bed partners, as they call them, but you do see where they have kind of contractual understandings, where the older monk is going to be devoted to the younger acolyte, then they're not going to take on other acolytes. So there is some legitimacy to the relationships. One thing that's really different, though, is that anal sex is completely allowed. It is something that is very much enjoyed. And it is, you know, it is something that is not considered uh, humiliating. It doesn't make you effeminate. It's nothing to be ashamed of. It is just a part of the sexual process, and they do have some designations to it. So you have the younger partner is going to be the passive partner most of the time, and the older partner is going to be the penetrative partner. So, you know, today we would say top and bottom, um, penetrative also being the inserter and passive being the insertee. The older monk was known as the ninja, not ninja. It's spelled N-E-N-J-A. And the apprentice was the Niyak. And they changed that to older brother and younger brother being the translation by the 1600s. And as I mentioned earlier, the relationship itself was called the brotherhood bond. And not all relationships lasted forever. So some would be, you know, I imagine a couple of years. There is some evidence that some are actually decades long. One thing that's interesting is that these these monks discussed the sexual process in, de- in detail and they specifically would use clove oil as lubricant for anal sex. So there are paintings showing them using clove oil as a way of preparing the anus for sex. And there would even be attendants that would, would, I guess, prepare the passive partner before the actual sexual intercourse took place. One thing that was, that's also really interesting about it is that some of the acolytes would cross-dress and they would actually appear as women at the older monk's request. And there's a really interesting aspect to homosexuality in Japan at this time where cross-dressing and androgyny was something that was very sexually attractive. And it's not so much that they were trying to pretend like it was a woman out of their own shame of same-sex sex. Part of it is that women weren't around but there was this kind of effeminate male beauty that they really liked. You know, younger men just kind of present in less masculine ways, that they're less bearded. So 
that could totally be an aspect to it too. But yeah, they would use clove oil. They they had dildos at the time too. And it was a very sexual place. And as I mentioned earlier, you have the samurai involved so they can go there or the nobility might be going to these monasteries for training. So they're exposed to the practice in Nanshoku. They know it's taking place. Homosexuality is considered very normative for them. They're familiar with it. But another thing that you find is samurai are also pretty sequestered from women at the time. There's also evidence that the samurai, when they were younger, we're talking about when they're teenagers, would get into these relationships with one another, even before they were considered adults at the time. And that's something that ranges a lot over the history of humanity, what an adult is. You know, as in England in the 1700s, if you're 14, you're an adult. You know, in America, if you're 18, you're considered legally an adult. That's the age of consent at this time. But back then you would have these these teen boys who could be in military training together and, and they would form homosexual relationships. And you did have the same situation where if one was older than the other, they would be the active partner. So if you had one that was 16 and his, for lack of a better term, his boyfriend is 15, the 16-year-old would be the active partner, the 15-year-old would be the passive partner. And some of them would stay in these relationships for the rest of their life. They also would, would call them brotherhood bonds. And, you know, they could last up until they're married. There's, some, there's an example of some lasting up until their 60s. So there was no real rule in terms of this. It was just all kind of a case-by-case basis. You also had when, when the different militaries in Japan at this time were fighting each other, you had the men all in these kind of military barracks and camps. And when they were in the barracks and camps together, as I mentioned, they were having sex with one another. And at a certain point, they would bring in these sort of like bed servants or like manservants. It's kind of the different ways that they get translated, but they're basically sexual attendants. And this was kind of part of the, this was part of the evolution that was taking place with Nanshoku in terms of the shoguns or the daimyos who are generals who are in nobility and, and their leaders, but not at the level of shogun, who would organize for there to be same sex sex workers, essentially, as part of the system dealing with, with their troops and their, and their military ranks. And these daimyos and generals, they would also have what they called beloved retainers of the golden buttocks. And this was just part of their entourage. When we think of an entourage and we think of nobility back then, there were, you could be married to a woman or have several wives and have concubines and courtesans. And you could have this noble, this individual who's part of the nobility who is basically engaging in sex with like several people. This could be five. This could be 20. There's one shogun who I believe had up to 100 male sexual partners during his reign. So that's the most extreme example. But you do have a sexual entourage. Now, basically what happens after Tokugawa Ieyasu unites Japan, becomes the shogun, creates his shogunate, as it's called. He wants to get all the samurai organized in a way that makes them easier to control. So all these samurai effectively are vassals of his land. 
but in the sense of there's, if you think of, of Europe, you know, you have counts and dukes and there's a whole hierarchy of the nobility. And one of the best examples is Louis XIV of France. He decides to consolidate the nobility and make everyone move to Versailles. So Tokugawa Ieyasu, he doesn't make them all come to the same place, although he does make a lot go to Edo, which is now just Tokyo, but of a different name. And he made a lot go to other cities. And what you had was cities began growing at a very rapid pace because the samurai had to live there, either spend a lot of time there or all of their time there. And at first, all of these samurai are moving into cities and they're exploding overnight. And it's there's a huge disparity in the amount of men to women. And during this time, you also have the emerging merchant class. And the merchant class, is heavily tied to urban centers. So you have what was previously a very agrarian-based society, and then you have the nobility, which is heavily related to the military at that time. Now that the military isn't as active as it was previously, you have these cities that are growing, and you have merchant classes, part of this urban society, and they're making a lot of money based off of um, society now congregating in one place and the economics behind that. And one thing that's really interesting about that too is even though they hold no real status in society, they do view the samurai as something that you want to emulate because they're the bourgeois, the bourgeois class. So they see that the samurai are doing nenshoku and they feel like if you engage in it too, you are emulating the wealthy, you are emulating the bourgeois class, and it's something they aspire to do. So you, you have more and more of nenshoku and same-sex sex ingrained in society at every level. You even see it to a certain degree at the agrarian level. I'll get into that later, but it is something that is seemed as really appealing and something that people want to emulate. Now, as a result of these growing cities, you have two big spaces that Nanshoku really starts to develop, and they're, they're actually quite connected. One of them is through Kabuki Theater. So Kabuki Theater is a very old style of theater in Japan. It's really famous because the actors and actresses are wearing these gorgeous outfits. These they're like these like kimonos. They're elaborate. They're beautiful. They have these masks on that are very ornate. They're very expressive, and and it's it's something that's very much associated with the traditional customs of Japanese culture. At first, there were literally not enough female actresses to play the female roles in those in those plays. So you actually had men that would play them. And those men became to be these sex symbols within the audiences, both from samurai who were watching and from the merchant, the merchants who were going to the theater as well. And these became sex symbols that would engage in sexual trysts. So they would be doing sex work. And they would also be performing. And you would have some that were, you know, seen as celebrities similar to today. They were not just theatrical performers, but they could dance and also be like a courtesan with your interaction with them. I don't really want to say the term male geisha, but that is the best equivalency that I can draw from it. For those of you who aren't familiar, geishas were... They were people who, there were these women who were beautiful, they had all this makeup on, the white face, the red lips, and they could play music, they would 
you know, be like entertainers of a sort. And so you had that, you had kind of an equivalency with these male kabuki performers. And they would also be associated with tea houses. Now, the tea houses, I, I, there's no real equivalent in today's society to draw from except kind of like a, maybe like a day spa or like a bathhouse. But there you could also engage in the commercialization of nanshoku. So you had tea houses that were effectively like brothels. And the kabuki theaters would be connected with these tea houses where the performers could, you know, work with customers sexually during the day and do performances at night and then go back to doing sex work with whoever was buying their their services. And these were all regulated by the Tokugawa shogunate. They would set up districts where the tea houses could be. They would keep track of the number of of sex workers or prostitutes that were engaging in nonshoku. At, at one time, they even had kind of a rough list of all the workers and the number of sex workers taking place at this time. So you did have a lot of, you had a lot of the government not only allowing it to happen, but being involved in the regulation process. And they really promoted it at first because you had all of these men in the cities together their wives and their family hadn't come. You have this apparently very bisexual culture. So Japanese men at this time are just totally unrepressed with their sexual desires. And as a way of kind of keeping people happy, the Tokugawa shogunate at times would heavily promote nanshoku and having these brothels for men to go in and, and have sex with each other and have these paid experiences. Now, the kagema, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, those would be the performers who were sex workers and actors who would cross-dress as women. And that was a very specific type of service that you would order. Other times you would want someone maybe who was actually dressed and presented themselves as, as a male. So they, they did start breaking it down into subsets of nanshoku in terms of how you wanted to express your sexuality or what you were interested in. Now, one thing that I found to be fascinating about this is the cultural acceptance of homosexuality during this time. So we're looking at between 1600, around 1850. And you had a lot, you have a lot of contemporaneous literature that's being written at that time. So you have a lot of fictional accounts of stories involving nanshoku, just like novels that are being written and this is like a really good zeitgeist and insight at the time of the cultural standards. But then you also have people that are writing about it in terms of like opinion pieces that could be in like newspapers, contemporaneous accounts that are also incredibly insightful for the way that people viewed this at the time. Because if there's one thing that you can learn is that there is what people say should and shouldn't be the case and then what was actually going on. And there's always a disparity. This is something that still exists today. And in terms of homosexuality in Japan, there was never the cultural condemnation that we see, especially in the West. So any, any country that was Christian was pretty much incredibly homophobic until like the last like 30 years. Homophobia still exists, but you did have a society that just never had 
the connotations of homosexuality being sinful. Generally speaking, at this time, Buddhism isn't that it's super permissive of homosexuality, but Japanese Buddhism is very permissive of homosexuality. So if you use that as the moral compass of society, they have no qualms with that. Buddhist monks are doing it. There's no religious, moral, or ethical argument or belief against homosexuality. And this creates a, a, a culture that's really interesting given how what we deem as progressive at this time. Like I mentioned earlier, the nobility is engaging in nunshoku. It's becoming commercialized. So you have these tea houses that are out in the open and kabuki actors that are sex symbols. And it's a part of society. There were brothels that were even in smaller agrarian towns. It wasn't as common, but it was definitely documented and something that people would take advantage of and engage in. As I mentioned earlier, too, there were some some rules that were written for it or these cultural expectations. And one of them was that the older partner would be the penetrated partner and the younger partner would be the the passive partner or the receptive partner. Although there were some instances where the sex worker or the prostitute was older than the person who was buying the services. So that would be kind of an exception of when a younger person would be a, a penetrative partner or the top. One thing that's really interesting too is that anal sex just did not have the connotations that it had Japan as you found elsewhere in Western Europe. And Western Europe at this time, even if you were you know, a heterosexual couple, you were not supposed to be having anal sex. Anal sex was considered dirty, sinful, unacceptable, barbaric, stuff like that. That is the opposite of what it was like in Japan at this time. Also, the way that culture looked at sexuality in Japan was so detached from the way that, that we think of it in the West. I mean, the West is an identity. And, you know, I mean, in America, especially, it's, it's an expression of our individuality. Which actually, in some ways, can you can draw some comparisons with Japan then, but it, it wasn't as attached to who you were as a person. It was just something that you kind of got off from and something that you were doing at a time and in a moment. And it was like this just like constantly like changing or oscillating sexual expression where, you know, you're like, oh, like I'm, I'm, I'm going to go have sex with a man and, you know, or I'm going to go have sex with a woman. It was just, as I kind of mentioned earlier, it was just like this land of bisexuality. And I'm talking specifically with men at this point. There's just not as much documentation with women. But it was just like this sexual kind of free-for-all. And there was even levels of intro that were also very much a turn-on. It was, it was just this really like kind of unfettered sexuality that I find fascinating, given that it's almost in a vacuum at that time. And is a pretty advanced civilization where we have all this documentation that tells us about contemporaneous views on it and, and, you know, the levels of, you know, regulated legal brothels where men are having same sex sex with each other. It was pretty uncommon for someone to be exclusively homosexual. So when we talk about this, it's like I said, people are more bisexual. There is some documentation of people who were exclusively homosexual but it was really just a, an outlet of sexuality that was really pretty common amongst men there are some documented sexual practices that i, I thought i wanted to mention because it, it it was interesting and it's it's uh synonymous with stuff today so there was one called 
And so this translates to turned up souls. And turned up souls is where the, the bottom or the passive partner lays on his back and puts his legs over the shoulders of the top or the penetrative partner. I believe we would call that plowing today, but they called it turned up souls. And what would be our equivalent for doggy style today was called summer moat. So it's, you know, exact same thing. People have been having sex almost the same way in a lot of different ways since the dawn of humanity. But we do actually have documentation for sexual positions that were at that time. And there's actually the part I'm going to get into now is really interesting because you start getting into a lot of the sexual practices. One of them, so the chrysanthemum flower was actually the symbol for Nanshoku because the flower itself was was said to have resembled an anus. You did have sex stores back in the day. So you have these Japanese sex shops that were really like famous or infamous, the way however you want to look at it, where they would sell different lubricants. There was even one called there were there were rawhide fake anuses. And there was one where they had a lot of different recipes for lubricant. Obviously lubricant is pretty pretty much mandatory for anal sex. And some of them would involve egg whites, arrowroot, starch, and a plant called phenol. There was a special paste that the passive sexual partners would ingest that was high in fiber that would keep them clean so that there wouldn't be you know, fecal matter when they were having anal sex. This was from a concoction that came from devil's tongue. The Japanese word for it was konyaku. And it was a paste that they made that was high in fiber. And there was one, there was this one powder that you could carry around. And if you spit in it, it would create a lubricant. So you could have anal sex lubricated wherever you needed to. Another aspect too is, as I had mentioned, anal sex was just a completely uninhibited form of sexuality. And part of the myth of sexuality was that you would have this little god would go inside of your anus and take control of your body and awaken your desire for nanshoku. So that's kind of like the folk mythological reason why they say that nanshoku existed. And yeah, the, I mean, it's interesting because the, the Japanese, like I, w- I was reading about how they just were kind of mesmerized by anality was the word, so anal. And just kind of the relationship that society had with anuses was very different than what we think of in the West. One thing that's also really interesting is that kissing and oral sex was not common at all. So for kissing, it was believed that kissing is something that was very intimate and you should do it with your your wife or if you're a wife with your husband. There are examples of sex workers and their customers kissing that we see with with art at that time, but that was something that was considered to be really reserved and intimate of a form of sexual expression. Oral sex does not seem to be common, and we don't know why. Some people believe that it it wouldn't really work for artistic expression, that it kind of went against the ethos and the the way that same-sex sex was created at that time. The art that depicts all this is called Shunga, and it's incredibly common. There's a lot out of there. I put it on the Instagram so you can see different examples of it. And it gets pretty explicit, too. So, I mean, there is, you know, no no holds barred in 16th, 17th, 18th century, century Japan. Now, 
when you had the younger males who were the passive sexual partner, kind of remind me in ancient Greece in a way where it gave you a level of social validation when you had an older lover. So it was, there was agency involved. You know, this is not systemic rape. This is not people being taken advantage of without consent. And some talked about that they liked it. They felt, they, they thought it felt good. They liked the attention that they received from worthy men. They liked the brotherhood bond. They liked the, re- the relationship. And even one was said that this is from, a story that was written at the time that a youth with no male lover is like a maiden without a betrothed and that they were just seen as an object of pity. So as I mentioned earlier, actors, male prostitutes made up a big portion of same-sex sex at this time, especially the commercialized aspects of it. And as I mentioned, they were the quintessential sex symbol of these cities. at the So the Onagata were the males who played female characters. So they were the ones who were cross-dressing for the performance. Kagema, which I brought up earlier, those were sex workers who cross-dressed just for sex, not for kabuki. Now, they say that the men in the audience became utterly intoxicated with their beauty and lost all hold on themselves. So it was, like I said, they were they were considered like the hottest little thought at the time. They were the little social influencers, if you will. And the wealthier audience members would would have them come visit them during the intermission. They would try to arrange having sex with each other afterward. And these men would be patrons. You know, they would entertain their patrons. They would they would sing. They could dance. They could play music. They could do party tricks. Some would remain cross dressed. Others would keep their male attire on. As I mentioned earlier, wealthier members of society would have these kabuki actors as part of their entourage. You would be buying the favor, kind of like an escort. They would just be like a permanent escort that you would keep on with you for either the wealthy merchants or the wealthy samurai nobility. And then you had some who would literally just be sex workers. They were not in kabuki. They were only doing sex work. And some of them had hard lives. Like this is, we have to be very honest about it. It was not glamorous for everyone. There were a lot of people that would enter into sex work out of coming from horrible, horrible poverty. Typically, the male would find a tea house that would basically be his sponsor, and they would be the ones that would get him into sex work, and he would enter into it, and they would have to train him at first. And so one of the first things that they would do is they would actually use wooden implements to dilate his rectum for about a month. And they would do it several times a day in order to prevent hemorrhoids. And they would also train him to be a performer in different ways. The Anagata were, so the ones who imitated women, would were, they were actually encouraged to live life as a woman. And so they would room and bathe separately from the men. They would observe female etiquette in their speech and table manners. And they'd even go to the bathroom while squatting to also emulate a woman. And a lot of people speculate that a lot of them adopted a female gender identity. There were a lot of health issues, similar ones today, that the sex workers faced. You know, gonorrhea and syphilis was rampant during these times. Hemorrhoids happened all the time. You know, there's no modern medicine, so you can't really treat STIs. It's something that you just had to live with. But there's also some evidence that there were people who enjoyed it. They liked the sex work. They found it to be a 
brought it. They like the erotic nature of the job. They found it pleasurable. So it goes both ways. I don't want to completely stigmatize it. There were some people who went into it willingly. They got to live a decadent and glamorous life from it. And they were they were famous within their own society. And there were other people who were taken advantage of just like today. There were also manservice in this time. And that was, it kind of goes back into the personal retainers for these generals and, and higher nobility. And there were more of the, like the male concubines at the time. So priests and monks had their own and the name for their manservants were Chigo. And then the samurai had their own bedmates also, as I had mentioned, including the daimyo. And they referred to them as either the golden buttocks or the Lord's goods. And townsmen could also employ sex partners through local employment agencies. Now, a lot of the shoguns, so back to the the nobility and the ruling class of Japan at this time, they would actually take on male lovers through their pages or basically the equivalent of like younger knights within the nobility system. And one that really sticks out is the third shogunate, so like the third king of Japan. His name was Tokugawa Tsunayoshi, and he had over 100 male concubines or manservants. He actually had a specific dormitory for them to live in. Some of them were married to women. Like these, they had families, but they would live with the king and and be at his sexual disposal. And and there's also some evidence that there was a sexual relationship between teachers and and their their students, but not quite of what we saw in ancient Greece. Now, most men at this time, so you have to remember for the most part they're bisexual. They preferred younger males. There is a lot of evidence that there were same-sex sexual relationships that took place amongst men who were in similar social standing and also similar in age. And that wasn't seen as problematic either, like we see in other cultures. And like, as I mentioned earlier, sexual passivity was not seen as inappropriate or unmanly for um, any male to engage in. There are some examples of these brotherhood bonds between samurai continuing through adulthood. So... Whether they got, they most likely got married, but had an extramarital relationship and even a relationship that predated the marriage. And other story that's interesting, though, is that there was another, there's another shogunate, Tokugawa Iemitsu. And he was known for exclusively being the passive sexual partner with all of his pages and manservants. So as we would say, you know, today, he would be exclusively a bottom. And that actually stands out a lot because that was not common back then, but it was documented. And from what I've gathered, there wasn't really any criticism from of him of it. Now, granted, he was the king, so criticizing the king doesn't go over as well. It was not a shameful thing at that time. It, Like I said, it stood out, but it wasn't shameful. Now, the last thing I do want to touch on is are the social attitudes that I really want to expand on this for during this time. As I mentioned, Shinto was the indigenous uh, religion of of Japan, and then later Buddhism came about. And you really have a synthesis of the two that coexist within society of each other. Both of them, both Japanese Buddhism and the Shinto faith, were not sexually inhibiting religions, and and they allowed a culture that was very sexually expressive. As I also mentioned, they believed that these water deities, they would go in through your anus and they would awaken the passion of Nanshoku within your body. But it, there were some criticisms that took place within society. 
One of them was that they were afraid that nonshoku would take away from people's marriages, that they wouldn't focus on their wife and, and their family. Procreation was something, too, that was a concern. They wanted people to have a growing population. You have to remember at this time that the average person lived to about 50. There were a lot of things that could kill you. There's no modern medicine. So it humans aren't sustaining their populations like we see today. There were also some people that would spend all of their money because, because they became obsessed with a kabuki actor that they had to keep paying to sleep with, and they would bankrupt themselves. And not that this was super common, but it was a problem in society enough that people were addressing it in writing. And also the physical and mental health. They knew that some of these sex workers were being taken advantage of, and STIs, so sexually transmitted infections, were a problem back then couldn't be treated, and and there are problems with hemorrhoids. They also mentioned that some of the sexual passive partners were experiencing a lot of pain, although that the criticism of that is heavily mixed because there are a lot of writers who, who say that it could be a quite pleasurable experience if done properly. So overall, it was very widely accepted, and there was really no problem within Japanese culture. And, and to this day, I just have not found a society that's been as open about this, especially during this time. One thing, though, that did stand out is that there was a belief that there was the cure for a degenerative nerve disease called beriberi. I don't know if I pronounced that right, but that it was cured if you had sex with men. So they, they did believe there were some medicinal properties with same-sex sex during this time. So, as I mentioned, there were sex districts that were designated by the shogun for Nanshoku throughout the city. And at one time in Tokyo, they had 24 different sex districts. So this was really prolific. Although, generally speaking, it's believed that it peaked in the 1700s, slowly started waning out. One of the reasons is because more women came into the, the cities. So you had both women that you could be in relationships with, but also there were more female sex workers. It starts to wane, but as I mentioned, by the mid-1800s, the practice is made illegal. And the Meiji Restoration starts, and so that effectively means by, by the 1800s, the 1860s, the shogun resigns. He's no longer the king of, of Japan, and all of the power goes back to the emperor. And that is why they call the Meiji Restoration, is because the emperor becomes the ruler of Japan and then they start they start engaging in kind of a more democratic society. One thing just to get to address this real quickly is the emperor was a figurehead at this time similar to the the queen of England where they have no real responsibility in terms of civic roles, you know, legislative roles. They don't pass laws. They're just there as kind of a god on earth and the shogun was really the effective ruler. That was the case then, but by the 1800s, that reverses and the shogunate disappears completely. Thank you again for listening to my most recent episode. As I mentioned, I love hearing feedback from y'all, so reach out to me, the History of Gay Sex Instagram. So History of Gay Sex is my Instagram account, and gaysexhistory at gmail.com is my email address. And if you like what you heard, please review and give us five stars on Apple Podcasts.